Today's passage will be from Luke chapter 3. Hear the word of God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him. What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn will burn with uncomfortable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of God. Good morning. morning. Am I allowed to dismiss the kids this week? Yes. All right, kids, off you go. Yeah, I got it wrong last week. Uh, If you're a visitor, welcome. My name is Nathan, one of the pastors here. Uh, Last week I said to dismiss the kids, and they weren't supposed to be dismissed. So uh, off you go. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that by your grace, through the power of your spirit, because of the work of Christ, we can repent and believe and enjoy your pleasure. Help us to understand these things all the more in this moment. Amen. Well, uh, this past Thursday was October the 31st. Uh, many of you celebrated Halloween, as did my kids, and got some candy. Uh, but there was another day on uh, that some of us celebrated on October the 31st, and that is Reformation Day. Uh, Reformation Day, where 502 years ago, the German monk Martin Luther goes to the church door in Wittenberg and nails those 95 pieces to the church door in Wittenberg. 
And Luther was requesting a debate when he put those 95 theses up. He was requesting a debate over something called indulgences, where people could give money to the Roman Catholic Church in order to buy time out of something called purgatory, which is a state of limbo uh, after death that's still upheld by the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther understandably saw that not only was this uh, false doctrine of indulgences just that unbiblical, but he also understood, and this was the reason for his ire, he understood that if you could buy repentance, if you could buy some time out of purgatory, as it were, without actually repenting, then you wouldn't actually repent. So that was the thing that he was so concerned about. You not only would spit upon the cross of Christ, you would wind up encouraging people to not repent of their sin. And thus, the first line of the 95 Thesis that sparked the Protestant Reformation read as follows. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And so fast forward then in the story some 36 years later in the year 1555. There in England, uh, the Roman Catholic Queen Mary has risen to the power of the throne just after the death of the Protestant king, King Edward VI. And living in England at this time was a man by the name of John Rogers that was a pastor there in England. And as soon as he heard of the Catholic Mary taking the throne, he preached a stirring sermon to his congregation to maintain, to uphold those Reformation ideals of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the Scriptures alone. Well, Mary's people caught wind of this sermon. They then bring John Rogers in for examination. uh, And they, interestingly, zero in on John's understanding of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholic understanding, both then and now, is that Jesus Christ is literally present in the elements of the bread and wine. Therefore, one must eat the Lord's Supper in order to literally eat and drink in grace for the forgiveness of sins. To deny this doctrine as still upheld by the Roman Catholic Church today is to be accursed, according to the Council of Trent. So when when asked if John Rogers would repent for believing that that teaching is false, John Rogers said that he would not. that he He went on to say, quote, That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. Rogers was deemed a heretic and therefore he was put to death by burning at the stake. On the day that he was to be burned, he asked if he could speak to his wife and ten children that were just outside of the prison that he was being kept in. Except he was denied that request. Instead, he was taken out that day and he was led to be burned at the stake. And as he was walking uh, out, Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that his wife and ten children were there and they watched him walk right by them. And his wife was actually carrying a newborn baby that he'd maybe never seen before. And the account goes that as John Rogers walked by his family that was weeping, seeing their dad, their husband walk by, it was said that John Rogers was singing the Psalms to the point in which he was eventually burned at the stake and died. So much of that murderous time was begun by this uh, Queen Mary. Queen Mary became known as Bloody Mary because John Rogers was the first of some 288 souls that would die during her reign. And so much of that murderous time was because Christians like Rogers understood that repentance was necessary in the life of a Christian. That you could not buy your way out, nor could you eat or drink your way out of sin. God had to bring souls to turn away from sin and bring them to the forgiveness of Christ. 
That's how important repentance was back in those days. And friends, that's how important repentance is today. And so we see that today. We will see that today as we continue our meditation on Luke's gospel. We come to Luke chapter 3. Uh, where we've been seeing in the first couple chapters all these testimonies of people being rejoice, of people being happy, of rejoicing that Christ had finally come. The Messiah that had been promised so many years before had finally shown up. And so we now move forward in the story. Last time we looked at the boy Jesus when he was 12. We now move story, forward in the story to the, to some 18 years to when John and Jesus are now adults. So Jesus we see in verse 23 is 30 years old. But just before Jesus' public ministry begins, we have that forerunner we've been learning about, John the Baptizer. He had to be the one to prepare the way for Jesus by administering a baptism of repentance. And so as you look down at the text there in Luke chapter 3, the first thing I want you to take notice of in this passage is to recognize all the persons and places of power there in verses 1 and 2. Do you see it there in Luke chapter 3? Notice all those persons and places of power. And notice where then also, notice where and when the power of the word of the Lord comes. Did you notice it? The long list of names documents all the peoples and places of power at the time, yet the word of the Lord doesn't come to them nor to the cities that they ruled over. Instead, the word of the Lord comes to John in the wilderness. John, a guy we know was dressed in camel hair, eating honey and locusts and preaching, as it were, out in the sticks. The power, the authority of God's word was coming through a man with no title as he was ministering in a place of no prominence. Can you imagine hearing about some great preacher, let's say in Shenandoah National Forest, and he's living in a tent eating off of berries. Just imagine that people streaming to him. And him preaching the gospel to them and calling to them to repentance and having this baptism. We would think that he wasn't very important, right? We would sort of write it off. We would say that like more, the, the, the most important people are the, you know, the president in D.C. or some CEO in New York. And yet the Lord seems to understand that the front lines of God's activity for his power and his glory is happening to some guy wearing camel hair living and preaching out in the wilderness. That's the Lord's humor. That's the Lord's power. That's his might. God wants to show ordinary people in neglected places so as to show the strength of his might. And so, friends, let me just say this in advance of what is likely to be a chaotic election cycle. Keep these things in mind. The world will be laser focused on a few wealthy people who want to rule from this great city. Meanwhile, we as Christians have to know that God is doing great things. He does use government. All kinds. He appoints leaders and takes them down. But the front lines of His power and glory is right here amongst His people. Largely forgotten by the world. Not noticed by the world. Nobody's going to take notice of this sermon or what we do here. And yet the Lord, as is evidenced by John, as the Word goes forth, that's where God is seeing power and might as He advances His glory. That doesn't mean to be clear that those offices of government, I understand that many of you work in them, are unimportant. They are important. They're very important. But we should understand that the ministry of the Word is those kind of front lines. Nevertheless, John here is preaching the Word of the Lord. His whole life was waiting for this moment. And there he is out in the wilderness preaching the Word, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he's doing. Preaching or proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now guys, don't miss this next part. It's important that we understand, we confessed it even in the Nicene Creed, it's easy to kind of lose sight of, 
The point is, is that baptism in and of itself cannot save us. Baptism in and of itself cannot forgive us of sins. Remember, John's ministry was embodied by that one word, prepare. His job was to prepare. That baptism was to prepare people for the one that could forgive us of our sin. If we look back in chapter 1, verse 17, you can flip over there. Luke 1, 17. Do you remember when the angel Gabriel spoke to Zechariah, John's dad, about the ministry of his son? And we recall in John uh, or in Luke 1, 17, Gabriel, it was said to Gabriel that his ministry would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prepared. So John's ministry is meant to point to Jesus, which is why when people thought that he might be the Messiah in verse 15, he says that he he says what he says in verse 16. He says, no, I baptize with water, but there's one that is mightier than I that is coming. Mightier than I. One that John the Baptist, the one Jesus, by the way, says uh, was he was what John the Baptist was said by Jesus that he was the greatest prophet ever. And yet that prophet, John the Baptist, says that he can't even he's not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. This is how mighty Jesus is. Which is why John says of Jesus in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, it's Jesus that takes away sin. It's not John. It's not His baptism. And where is it baptism today? Which leads us to understand why John says what he says in John 3.30. He, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. A great life verse for us all. John understands his baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is meant to prepare people for the ministry of Christ, which would, as Isaiah said of Jesus, it would fill the valleys, it would lay low the mountains, it would make the crooked paths straight and make the rough places plain. Meaning the forgiveness that Christ offers in His sacrifice would destroy all the hindrances to God. All the souls that like valleys sink as a result of their sin. All the souls whose pride has swelled like mountains because of their sin. All the crooked paths that people are walking because of their sins. They will smooth out when they, verse 6, see the salvation of Jesus. The one that is mightier than the mighty John, the baptizer. John's baptism was preparing them for Jesus. And some of you are wondering... As we consider John, why is he there in the first place? Why couldn't Jesus just show up? Why did he need this one to prepare? I've wondered that question myself in the same way. But the reason why the Lord gave John as a preparation for Jesus was so as to ready them by his grace. It's a gracious gift. John's ministry was a gracious gift to his people. So think about it this way. Before I moved out of my house, my mom and dad, thanks be to God, helped prepare me to live with a wife, right? We can think of it this way. Before I took my job in sales, after I got out of college, Georgia State University helped prepare me for that job. Before I became a pastor, my local church in Southeastern Seminary prepared me to be a pastor. And aren't you glad they did? I still mess up. But I'm still like, aren't you glad that you had those people to prepare me to help you? John prepared people for the ministry of Christ. And by God's amazing grace, he got people ready for the mighty Jesus who would be the one to take away sin. His baptism was preparing for a greater baptism of the Spirit, which would cleanse from within. More on that in a moment. But I want you to notice now the vessel of preparation. Did you catch it? The vessel of preparation for the ministry of Christ. The vessel of preparation for the ministry of Christ is a baptism of repentance. And so repentance 
is the keynote of John's ministry. People repenting of sin is the way people are prepared for the forgiveness of sin. Now, I realize that when I say to you that John the Baptist's ministry is, the prep- is repentance, I realize that when I say that, a sermon on repentance isn't exactly welcomed by you. You know, if you're visiting this morning and somebody, you go back home to a wife or to a spouse or you speak to your mom or your dad and they say, hey, what did the preacher talk about? And they say, well, he talked about repenting. I'm pretty sure they're not going to be like, man, I wish I could have been there for that one. Right. I bet that was great. Right. Maybe even some of you now, as you hear this ministry of repentance, even some of you are going, gosh, Nathan, can't you say something more positive than repentance? But one of the things I want you to see is that repentance is good. That's what this passage is really trying to teach us in part. So when we think of repentance or sermons on repentance, we normally think of one of people whose guys whose faces are red, whose voice is loud, whose heart is angry and whose spirit is self-righteous. And yet, friends, John the baptizer is none of these things, save maybe one of them. Take a look down there at verse seven. John is out there preaching, baptizing when, when the, uh, within the crowd, amongst the crowds when it says that those crowds, more crowds came to be baptized. And the other Gospels, they say it's the Pharisees. And so we putting those together, the crowds and the Pharisees within those crowds come out. And how does John greet them? Can you imagine again those, that sort of situation where we're out in Shenandoah National Forest, he's preaching the gospel, people coming, and a bunch of crowds come, and John the baptizer says, you brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? Now, if we were there, we'd be like, John, dude, tone it down, bro. Like, take it easy, man. They're coming out to baptism repentance. Why is John so upset? Well, the reality is that John knows something about the inclinations of these Israelite people. In verse 8, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So in other words, John saw that there were some in those crowds that were there for hypocritical reasons. I want you to notice, first off, he does not dismiss the crowds entirely. He's still going to call them to, to, uh, uh, to repentance. But he understands there is some hypocrisy in these crowds as they come. And what he's doing is that he has not, John is not presuming that their religiosity, that is their interest in baptism, is equal to their interest in loving God and loving neighbor. He's not assuming that just because they're showing up. He's very aware that there is hypocrisy in the crowds and he's calling it out. And the way that he calls it out is by appealing to where their confidence really is. So where their hope is, where their trust is, you know, and I wonder even now, for those of you that have been baptized, think back to that moment in time. Where was your hope? Where was your love? Where was your trust? What was your motive in that? Well, John seems to think that there are some in the crowds that are interested in being baptized, but their trust for escaping the wrath of God for sin is in their tradition. It was there. It was in who their mom and dad were. It was the fact that they were sons and daughters of Abraham, that they were Jews, that they were Israelites, they were given to the promises of God. They were good, and so therefore, they didn't need to worry about the coming wrath of God. There was nothing to really concern themselves in. That was for all the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. They knew that they needed to do something regarding religion. They needed to do something religious-y, 
which is what cultural Christianity or consumeristic Christianity does today. We know that we need to show up to church. Maybe we should get baptized. It's sort of a good thing. God says something about that. We should do it. But ultimately, the trust is not in Christ. It's in tradition. And so this is what John is calling out. And as John saw this, know this about the crowds, that there are some in the crowds like this, he calls it out and he says, in essence, bunk. No. I understand that you're externally religious, but your internal religion is vacuous. Therefore, I don't have time for that. The Lord doesn't have time for that. And so therefore, there's, no, there's nothing to be done here for you. And so that metaphor about the axe and the tree there in verse 9 is telling them that their source, if their source of confidence is not in Christ, then they're going to bear bad fruit and they're going to be cut down and thrown into the unquenchable flames. But if their source or their confidence is in Christ, they'll bear good fruit. They'll bear good fruit. If their hope is in Jesus in this baptism and the coming Messiah, then they'll bear good fruit. But if, if they're not, if their hope is in their religiosity, if their hope is in their mom and dad, if their hope is in their heritage, their hope is even in their good deeds, then John says that it will bear bad fruit and be thrown away. Look over to verse 17 again. John says when Jesus shows up, he's going to get out his winnowing fork, his tool, and throw the wheat, that is those that trust in Christ, into the barn, and the chaff, that is the leftovers, into the unquenchable flame. Now I realize that when we read this, this is the kind of stuff that you probably think about when you hear sermons on repentance. Right? But I want you to see, friend, the reason why the brood of vipers doesn't like sermons on repentance because it, they, is because they don't see it as good news. They, 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 they don't like calls that sort of call out their fakeness, as it were, to being a follower of Jesus. People don't like sermons on repentance because they don't like to be reminded of something else yet they need to do. I can think about this in my own story. When I was 13 years old, I was baptized in the Methodist church. My mom and dad signed me up for a class, and I went to the class, and I administered the class, and they sprinkled water on my head. That was my baptism. And I can tell you that every call to repentance after that experience was met by me with disdain. It was hard enough to follow Jesus as it was. And I was trying to read my Bible and go to church and do all the stuff Christians are supposed to do. And I wasn't actually bearing much fruit, but I would do those things as a way of depositing into my God account. Right? So I was showing up to church, I was being baptized, I was going to the class, I was praying, I was doing all that stuff to sort of deposit into my God account. So by depositing it into my God account, then I would understand myself to, have under, to, to believe that God would sort of forgive my sins and He would be good to me and give me a couple hits in the game next week. That's, that's really what I thought. Now I probably would not have been able to articulate it that clearly, but that's what was happening. And so all the calls to repentance I didn't like back then, and I'm sure that's true, uh, for people today. We think calls to repentance. Those are for the atheists. Those are for the Muslims. Those are for people like that that don't actually believe on Jesus. Meanwhile, I was living a cold-hearted, largely disinterested uh, Christianity, largely separated from the church life. I lived in unrepentant sin, and so my visits to church were really for myself at the end of the day. It was the equivalent of thinking that I was a child of Abraham. Therefore, I had nothing to fear about the coming wrath of God. I'd been baptized in the church. And meanwhile, I was bearing bad fruit. And friends, were it not for the grace of God when I was 19 years old, I would have died and gone to the unquenchable flames. And I would have deserved that. A 
would have deserved it. And so, of course, I didn't like calls to repentance. But friends, the hard reality is these calls to repentance, listen, they are good news. They are good news. We'll talk about why in a second. But I want to acknowledge, friends, the clear teaching of Scripture that is happening here in this passage. The stubborn reality of these verses are that there is a place of unquenchable punishment reserved for those that are either happy to not be saved at all or to even take the name of Christ but live unrepentantly in sin. Trusting in yourself. Trusting in your own religious deeds. Both John and Jesus, friends, do not hide from this teaching in their public ministries. It comes up all the time. I feel the even pull at this moment to not talk to you about this. And I went to the parade yesterday and had a great time celebrating the Nats and there were these brothers outside preaching the gospel. Right? And I was thinking, and these brothers were not, they were not screaming, thankfully. They were being kind and generous and yet calling people to repentance. And I was thinking to myself, well, I'm glad, you know, the, the, the posture was like, man, I'm, those guys are courageous. And yet, I, then I got to thinking, well, I'm going to have to do the same thing tomorrow. And so there's this tendency even within me to not talk, call you to repentance. The tendency is to shy away from it because of how I might come off or how we as a church might come off. And yet, friends, we cannot deny John and Jesus are not trying to hide from this teaching. They're not trying to hide from the teaching of hell and what happens to those that do not repent and believe on Jesus. They're not trying to hide from it. It's clear, it's open, and it's frequent. And so, friends, out of love for you, I'm not going to hide from it today. If you are consciously opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Or even if you claim Jesus, and yet you are consciously living in unrepentant sin, trusting in your own religious beliefs, your own religious, uh, sorry, your own religious activities to save you, like things like baptism to save you, then friend, my call to you is to repent. To turn away from trusting in all of those things. Trusting in your good deeds. Trusting in your lifestyle. Trusting in who your mom and dad is. Trusting in your traditions. And trust, friend, in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. To save you. That is to say, turn the other direction. Confess your sin to God and plead the grace of God to cover you. Plead Christ to save you. Ask Him to reorient your desires in line with Him. Because if you don't, as it says there, when you die or when Christ returns, you will spend an eternity apart from Him in hell. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why I'm here. Turn away from sin. Turn away from sin. And you'll go to hell if you don't do this. You will go to hell not because you weren't good enough. Not because you didn't do enough religious deeds. Not because you, uh, anything other than the fact that you denied the grace of God and the Son of God. That's why. That's the only reason why. You either chose to go your own way or you were unwilling to turn away from sin and trust Jesus for forgiveness and be changed by His grace. In either case, case friend, you will be left to make the payment for the wrongs and in an eternal hell. Either you trust Jesus to pay that sin for you or you trust pay it yourself. That, friend, is your destiny. Unless you repent and trust Jesus to save you. So let me go ahead and go there. The call to repentance, the call to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, friends, is good news. And the reason it's good news is because the call to repentance is a call to life. It's a call to life. And so the valleys, the hills, the mountains, the crooked paths that the world walks in day after day are paths away from the good God that made the world very good. 
Every sinful choice is a choice away from God and towards self-rule. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. Therefore, the call to repentance, don't miss this, is a call to come back home. It's a call to come back home by God. That's what repentance is. We'll see this in quite some time, but in Luke 15, 7, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And this is the context for that great story that we all love, the story of the prodigal son. That verse that I just read is the context for the story of the so-called prodigal son, where Jesus tells the story of the younger brother, right, that goes to the Father and sinfully pleads for all of His inheritance. And then He goes off and He walks those crooked paths into valleys and up vain mountains to then spend all that money on Himself to the point to when He right finds Himself in the pigsty, wanting the pig's food, when all the money had run out. And everything was terrible. Until the day, that younger brother wonders if his father, if he would repent of what he did wrong, if his father would take him back in, not as a son, but as a servant. And so he goes home. Jesus tells the story. He goes home. And the father, don't you love this part of the story? The father sees his son on the horizon. And he runs to the son. The father, representing the father God, sees the son. He runs to the son. And the son comes to the father. And the son repents. He repents. What I did was wrong. I was selfish. Forgive me, Father. And before he even gets into the speech that he rehearsed about being a servant to the Father, the Father forgives him and says, come in, and he treats him like a son. He gives him the signet ring, and he gives him the, the robe, and he, and he tells this, he gives him this, this great party. And then the older, self-righteous brother says, What's all, why is all this happening? And the Father says, because your brother was lost, and now he's found, he's here, he's back, he's home. This is the story of repentance that Jesus is telling us. It's good news. It's good news. This is the call that Jesus has for us when He calls us to repent. He is the seeker. We are the lost. Every one of us. All of us have sinned and fallen short, not of our potential, but of the glory of God. Each of us have walked those crooked paths and tried to climb mountains of vanity. Each of us were enemies of God, myself the foremost. But when the call to repent was given, some of us turned. When like that son, we turned around by the Lord's grace, by the Lord's grace, by the Lord's grace, we turned around and we went home and we pled the Lord, the Father's grace. And he took us in, not as a slave, but as a son, as a daughter. And we see from Luke fifteen seven, he throws great parties in heaven when that happens. Great parties in heaven. He surely shows that in that story. And the reason why is because an enemy of God found a home with God. And so Jesus is the seeker that looks for the lost sheep and brings them back home. Jesus is the one that seeks out the lost coin. Jesus is the one that runs to the son and brings us home. Jesus is the author of repentance because he is the author of salvation. Jesus said he came to call sinners to repentance. That's what he said. Didn't come to call uh, the, the healthy people came to call the sick. He came to call sinners to repentance. And so repentance is a call to respond to the seeker. Repentance is the call to respond to the Father to come back home. To leave the life of indulgence and enter into a life of believing. To stop believing lies and to start believing the truth and living in light of the truth. 
So the first thing we need to understand about repentance is it's a call to respond to the Father. It's a call to respond. But also we need to see that repentance is agreeing with the Father. That we deserve the wrath of God that John talks about there in verse 7. Repentance is agreeing with the fact that God, we deserve the wrath of God that comes upon us. The Son understood that He deserved the state that He was given. Repentance uh, agrees that we not only broke God's law, listen, but we broke His heart. That's what repentance is. It agrees. It agrees that we deserve the wrath of God. It agrees in sorrow that we deserve His wrath. Repentance then turns around. It turns around and it turns the other direction in faith. That's the third thing repentance is. It's a call of God. It hears the call of God. It hears. It agrees. And thirdly, it believes. It turns the other direction and believes. Stops believing in that understanding of the good life and starts believing that one. That God is good and that He can forgive. Repentance hears. It agrees and turns around and believes. Believes the truth that God forgives all of our sins in Christ. Repentance turns from self to the Savior as Lord and Master. Repentance says, I no longer trust in my ability to straighten out crooked paths or climb mountains. I trust Jesus to fill up every valley and lay low every hill. Proverbs 28.13 says it so well. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them, that's the new life, then he will obtain mercy. Mercy. And so it's when we trust Jesus, we hear his call to come home. We agree that we deserve the wrath of God. And then we believe that Jesus paid our debt, that Christ is mine, that he is our joy. And so the greater baptism that John references there in verse 16, you see it. That's a baptism of the spirit that sanctifies, that cleanses us all from unrighteousness. It's a fire. It's a refiner's fire that cleanses us cleanses us from within, not from without, from within. And so repentance hears, repentance agrees, repentance believes, and fourthly, repentance then enjoys. Enjoys. Look down there in verses 21 and 22. Luke documents for us the baptism there of Jesus. Guys, this is a critical piece of the Gospel. You've got to understand this. We get baptized in order to demonstrate our death to sin and our life in Christ, our resurrection life in Christ. But we need to ask the question, right? If Jesus didn't sin, why is he getting baptized? It's a good question to ask. If Jesus never sinned, why is he getting baptized? Well, the answer, friend, is so that he might identify himself with sinners who need saving. That's why. We, I, we can identify ourselves with Jesus because he first loved us by identifying himself with us in his life. In his death and in his resurrection. And particularly how that's embodied in the baptism. He said he came to call sinners to repentance. And so he did what sinners who have repented do. He was baptized. And because he did. Because he identified with sinners in the cross. In baptism. We now that are in Christ. Can identify with him in his resurrection. Hallelujah. Right. Good news. His act of righteousness gets credited to us who repent and believe, because the Father credited our sin, our punishment, to Him on the cross and in the resurrection. This is that great exchange that Luther talked about 500 years ago. Our sin and punishment credited to Him on the cross. His righteousness gets credited to us all by grace. We've done nothing to deserve it. It's a beautiful story. 
This is the gospel. And we see that demonstrated in baptism. We see that demonstrated in this passage. And so the words then, note the transition here. The words that the Father speaks of the Son, Christian, are words to you. That's amazing. And what are those words? Verse 22. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This Christianity that teaches you to perform, 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 perform is anathema. In Christ, God loves you. He's pleased with you. He's for you. He's happy with you because the Son is in you and you are in the Son. That's justification. That's what it's all about. And so the Father loves the Son. The Spirit we see there descends upon the Son as Jesus is praying and He's baptized. And so the Spirit does the same thing for us that repent and believe as He did for Jesus. He descends upon us. And He dwells within us, sanctifying us from within. And there then is this joy, this pleasure of repentance. As God sees the Son, so He sees us. And so while we are sinners in Christ, we are forgiven, we are adopted, we are anointed in Christ, and therefore He is well pleased with us. Do you see now why repentance is such good news? It's beautiful. So repentance hears the call of God to turn around and come home. Repentance agrees that we deserve the wrath of God for our sin. Repentance believes the grace of God in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And repentance enjoys the pleasures of God who brought us back home. This, friends, is why John says in verse 18, look at it, this is good news. It's right there in the text. Now some of you are looking down to Luke 3. And you're noting that Savannah didn't read all of those names. And you're thinking, oh, here we go. Another church that doesn't pay attention to all the names. Well, we do pay attention to those names. And those are really, really, really important. Verses 23 to 38. If you're wondering what's going on there. Why is this genealogy there? Well, the answer is simple. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is able to save sinners that repent because He is the Son of God. Look at verse 38. That's the whole crescendo moment. It just said, back in verse 22, that's the Father. You get the Trinity there. That's why Christians believe in the Trinity. Father speaking, Spirit descending on the Son. right? And the Father says, you are my beloved Son. And then verses 23 to 38 are the verification of that truth. So you can imagine, if Jesus showed up and says, I'm able to forgive sinners that believe, repent and believe on me. And we would say, well, how is it we know that? How, we, how can we trust you? And he flips open his badge. And says, this is why I'm the son of God. And it would be this genealogy. That's what's going on here. This is something, by the way, that the biblical authors do quite often. That's what's going on with this genealogy. And so, this explains, by the way, the differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. Two parts. So the first off is uh, Luke's understanding. Luke's sort of mission in the Bible is slightly different than Matthew's is. So Matthew's interested in showing you the links between Abraham and David, that Jesus fulfills those two covenants, Abraham and David. That's why he's doing the genealogy the way that he does. Whereas here in Luke, he's doing something slightly different. He wants you to see that Jesus really is the Son of God. That's the difference in those two genealogies. And as to some of the differences in the lines, the kind of disagreement that pundits might say is a contradiction, what we see here is Luke is documenting Mary's line, as opposed to Jesus, or as opposed to Matthew documenting Joseph's line before. And that's evidenced by the fact that we see there that this was the supposed, look at verse 23, 
when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. In other words, he wasn't. He was the son of Mary. And thus he documents the line of Mary. That's what's going on there. But Luke then traces Mary's entire line. But either way, the point is to show you Christ is the Son of God. And because He's the Son of God, He can save sinners who repent and believe on Him alone to forgive them for their sin. John's baptism was set up to prepare people for all of that. To kind of cue them up so that when He came, they would be ready to be spent for the kingdom of God and the glory of Christ. I like to think of John's baptism a lot like a pinball machine. Sort of a strange analogy, but when you put that quarter, nowadays it might be like five bucks, but like you put that quarter down in there, right? All the balls cue up, right? They're all queued up. And then you pull back and one by one, you send them out into, into the pinball machine. Well, John is the one that's preparing for the balls. He's the one that puts the balls in the queue. And Jesus comes out and pulls the thing about and spins it out into the world for the sake of His glory. He's preparing. And so let me leave us then, having considered these realities, with four brief applications to this passage. Four responses to repenting and believing on Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. Here's the first one. Should be obvious. Get baptized. <laughs> Get baptized. John's baptism was built upon the Israelites' baptism of leaving the slavery of Egypt, going through those kind of baptismal waters of the Red Sea. That's what John's baptism is, is doing. It's also sort of connected to the priestly right, anointing where they would cleanse themselves before going into the Holy of Holies. Right? John's baptism is built upon that. But John's baptism also was pointing, as it pointed backwards, it pointed forwards. It pointed forth to Jesus's, to an encapsulation of the gospel. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Which explains why Jesus would command baptism. In Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptizing who? Baptizing the disciples. Baptizing the ones that have repented and believed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so if you have repented uh, and believed on Christ, and you understand yourself to identify with Jesus and His atoning work of forgiveness, and you have not been baptized, or you have recently decided to place your faith in Christ, maybe in this moment, right now, listen, come talk to us. Talk to me, talk to Joey, talk to one of the other pastors, talk to the friend that bra- uh, brought you. We would love to talk to you more about baptism and what it means in the life of a Christian. It's such an important decision. Guys, I can't think, you think about this. Baptism is the only command, y'all have heard me say this all the time, you're tired of me saying it, but it's true. Baptism is the only command I'm aware of that you get to obey one time your entire life. And so we would love to celebrate that. And that's exactly what Luke, Jesus says in Luke 15, 7, right? We, angels are rejoicing over this repentance. And so we would love to talk to you about baptism if you need to be baptized. We want to celebrate it with you. We understand baptism as an ordinance given to the local church to facilitate. So again, we would love to talk to you about it. But the second thing, after you have been baptized, you've repented and believed on Jesus, you've been baptized. Secondly, keep on repenting and believing. Keep on repenting and believing. Look there at verse 8. You can see it there. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It's a, In the Greek there, it's sort of like this active aspect of things. It's not just this one-time thing. You remember back to Martin Luther's first thesis, right? The entire life is one of repentance for the Christian. So there have been some sloppy teaching on this doctrine of repentance, which leads many confessing Christians to think this happens all over the place. It especially happens in the place where I grew up, 
where they think they, they had a conversion spirit at one, a conversion experience at one time, they repented and believed on Jesus, and then they just went and left, uh, left the church and lived however they wanted to. That is not in the Bible. That is not true. As we see there in verse 8, we should be bare fruits. We should be constantly happy. If we've repented and believed, we should be always repenting and believing and confessing on Christ. In other words, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But then, listen, we're sanctified how? By grace through repenting and believing in Christ. You're saved by repenting and believing in Christ. You're sanctified by repenting and believing in Christ. We're always repenting and believing because we are sinners trying to grow up into the reality that we are. So important to understand. The distinction between justification and sanctification. Sanctification is repenting and believing in Jesus. And guys, that's, by the way, that's why we explain the Lord's Supper. You heard Joey do it. You'll hear Joey do it in just a minute. When in front of the table, he'll, he says this table is reserved for all those that are all those that are baptized believers that are repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus alone. That's why we say that. We want you to understand that our whole life should be ordered in that way. This is why Jesus even says in Matthew 5, that if you know that somebody has something against you, go and reconcile with them before you come to the table. One of the greatest joys, one of the greatest memories of my life, so sweet and instructive to me, was when I was in seminary and a sister approached me while I was standing in the line to go and get the Lord's Supper. She had tears rolling down her eyes. And she just confessed this sin that she'd sinned against me. I didn't even know about it. But I, she asked, will you forgive me? And I, of course, gave her a big hug. And I said, sister, I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. And I said, let's go, t- let's go take the Lord's Supper together. Right? Reconciled in Christ by the power of Christ. That's what this table is doing. So we'll give you more uh, about that in a minute. But we also understand that the whole life is repenting and believing. So that's why, by the way, we do confessions at this church. Because we want to teach you. So that's why we do those confessions. You hear prayers every single week from the pastor about con- re- confessing sin. That's why we put those there. Uh, that's why we do public confessions. Um, and so a great way to illustrate this for you, this need of repenting and believing, is my wife and I, brief story, uh, we applied, actually Andy applied for a little garden plot in uh, D.C. I don't know if you all have seen those. But they're all over the place. 25 bucks a year. It's great. We're thinking this is going to be awesome. Good for the kids. We'll get some free food. It's going to be awesome. Well, we show up to the plot, and what do we see? But a mound of weeds. I mean, it was bad, y'all. I mean, it was like literally plastic chairs. Pulling stuff back, we find plastic, numerous plastic chairs in there that I didn't even know were there. All these plastic things, I guess they would have guarded up. And we dug all the stuff out, and we take all the weeds out, and we finally get it leveled. And we kind of create these dividers, and we start planting seeds. And as we plant seeds and we water and we're feeling great, everything looks so nice, it looks so beautiful. And then what happens? This crazy thing happened. Weeds came back. So that was the, that was the hardest work of farming. I was a farmer for about you know, a year. So and the hardest work, the hardest work, it was terrible, right? The hardest work was in going back and constantly pulling up the weeds. And the more that we pulled up those weeds, guess what happened? The more fruit came. But if we didn't actually go and keep pulling out the weeds, the weeds would have choked up the fruit and we would have got no tomatoes, no blueberries, no blackberries, no peppers, none of that. Because the weeds were left to root out. That's the life of the Christian. We're constantly helping each other pull out the weeds so that fruit would rise up for the glory of Christ, the good of our neighbors, and the good of us. That's what the life is. We should always be having sorrow for our sin, specifically, re- regularly, uh, 
repenting and believing. We need each other to do this work. And friends, this is an important reason to, uh, important aspect of our lives to do together because it has been, as it has been said, and I believe this is true, it has been said, we see so little repentance in the world because we see so little repentance in the church. I think that's true. And it's been saddened to watch. I've been perplexed. I've been angered. I've been, uh, I've been saddened to see how so-called evangelicals from my own sort of tribe that are prideful and self-righteous. How does that match repenting and believing and receiving the grace of God day after day? I don't understand. How, how is it public? How is it Christians can publicly denigrate women, villainize political rivals, participate in racism or look the other way about racism, self-righteously shame uh, the sexually immoral, even slander fellow brothers and sisters in Christ publicly and laughing about it. How does that match grace upon grace and repentance day after day? No, we should understand ourselves of all the world. The church should understand ourselves. We are the great participators of grace. We should understand repentance more than anybody else. We should not be so quick to be defensive and understand that we have received grace and so we should offer it to others and specifically and regularly repent and believe. Uh, thirdly, be content with what we have and serve others. That's what we see in this passage. Be content with what we have and joyfully serve others. You can see where I'm getting that from in verse 14. John says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then you've got these great guys ask, well, what does that look like? Well, verse 11, he says, we should share in our abundance of food and clothing. Let me just stop for a moment and thank those of you that came out yesterday and did just that. We went door to door asking for people to give food so that we could share it with the poor. Thank you for those that did that. You were in that way bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We look forward to having a harvest to bring to the Central Union Mission on Tuesday. But verse 12, referencing tax collectors, he says, don't collect more than you have to. Verse 14, he says to the soldier, do not extort money by threats or by lying. But instead, there it is, be content with your wages. In other words, if Christ has forgiven you of your sin, then you should have this reorientation away from hoarding, away from taking, away from always thinking of yourself, and towards up towards God and out towards the good of others. That should be our orientation towards uh, as Christians. The joy of others in need. Providing for them. Not seeking to take for them. Not seeking to use them to indulge ourselves. Christians should actively work against always needing more, always laboring, always stealing, lying to get more, but instead being honest and serving the joy of our neighbor and living contented, living simplistically for the joy of Christ and the good of our neighbor. We should be people marked by grace in contented joy because we all we have all that we need with who? Christ. Which leads me to the final application. Get baptized Daily repenting and believing. Be content with what you have. Serving the joy of others. Fourthly, suffer well. Suffer well. That's probably not the one you were looking to hear this morning. But it's right there in the text. Look at verse 19 and 20. John's ministry was cut short, among other things, because he told a regional leader, Herod, that he should repent for taking his brother's wife. The point of this passage here is to show the kind of baton passing. John's ministry is done. Jesus is going to carry it on. But here, Herod had placed John in jail and later had John's head literally chopped off because, listen, because of John's view of marriage. His life was cut short because his views on marriage. 
And while we don't have reason to believe the same is going to happen to us, we do have reason to believe that we will suffer for repenting and believing and calling others to do the same. It may come because of our views on marriage between one man, one man and one woman. It may come because we believe that Christ is the only way for salvation. It may come for some other reason that we don't even know about yet. But the reality is, friend, God has promised us time and time again, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And guys, that is on almost every page of the New Testament. We have lived in this strange experiment in the United States of America in comparison to church history, where we feel as though that we can be Christians and not have to suffer. But the reality is, you go talk to our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and in India and in China, they suffer daily for what they believe. The suffering in the Christian life is normal. John Rogers knew that. That's why he did it. That's why he walked to that state. Because he knew that Christ was worth it. The question is, friend, do you, do you know and believe that Christ is worth it? That He is worth suffering for? That He's worth repenting and believing for? To brother, sister, husband, wife, most importantly to God. Because if you do, if you've received that grace of forgiveness, listen, God has called you home. And so we're no longer oriented by this world. We try to do good in the world, but we're not oriented by this world. We are oriented by the world to come. Christ has called us there. Our citizenship lies there. And so may we suffer well, repenting and believing, calling others to come home to Jesus, that they might be forgiven and dwell in the new and heavenly Canaan forever and ever. Amen. Let's ask God for help. Father, I confess I don't like to be told to repent. But it's true. I am a sinner in need of grace. And as are we all in this room. And so we're thankful that at the heart of the Gospel is a Savior that identified with sinners in baptism. Which extends a hand to anybody else that would repent and believe of their sin and trust in Him. That they might be forgiven of their sins. Oh God, may we be a church that is salt and light to the world, as is evidenced by our bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, acting like we receive grace because we repent and need to repent every day for our sin, growing up into the grace that is ours in Jesus. May that be true of us. May we be a church that is salt and light because we receive grace. We've been called home. We're oriented towards heaven. And so we daily repent and believe on our Lord, our mighty Jesus, the one of whom sandals we are not worthy to untie. Thank you, God, for the ministry of John. And may we be kinds of John to our neighbors, preparing them for Jesus. We ask it in His name.